When they first started out, Teddy and Vincent Sapola were just two brothers with a YouTube show. It was one of many like it at the time, because amateur ghost hunting was a bit of a fad. The brothers, however, stood out. They came across as genuine, because they were sincere in their belief of the supernatural. Um, also, being brothers, they had a, a brotherly bickering banter between them that really played well on uh, visual medium. They called themselves the Ghost Detectives, and they liked to blend historical fact, called from extensive research, with on-the-scene investigation of old sites done very Blair Witch style. Their online notoriety got them a look from a third-rate cable channel who offered them a, a test run of six episodes, but there were a couple of big caveats. One, they had to change their name because somebody else was already using Ghost Detectives, so they would now be known as the Ghost Brothers Detective Agency. And two, they needed a female, preferably a hot one, because the network felt they needed more sizzle. Teddy and Vincent didn't hesitate to agree to any and all network stipulations, because not only was there pretty good money involved, but there was wide exposure on TV. And so they threw themselves into their work, put in all due energy to try and turn the show into a success, which they did. They didn't do it on their own. They had managed and gotten lucky enough to find a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend named Tannis Cray, who was an aspiring paranormal researcher who also had a pretty solid journalism background. And as luck would have it, she was also easy on the eyes. So the brothers liked her for being legit, and the network liked her for being pretty. That first test run of six episodes really worked, and the ratings were respectable. So in season two, they got more episodes, a bigger budget, and a better producer. Now the crew got to travel to a lot more exotic and faraway sites. They explored the old farmland that used to belong to Obadiah Moncrief, the cannibal hog farmer. They tracked the origins of the heartland myth of the demonic corn silk scarecrow called Mr. Nix. And in their most popular episode ever, they stayed the night in an apartment in the same Seattle row house where the hand collector, Martin Rose, had committed many of his crimes. And it was while they were researching that episode in particular that they first heard about Cell 6. I'm sure you all remember Cell 6. I personally chronicled its history in the episode called The Ghastly Ones, but echoes of its evil ring out all across this series. Much like myself, when the Ghost Brothers crew researched Cell 6, they became more and more entranced by that story, the stronger the pull became. And all three of them, Teddy, Vincent, and Tannis, came to believe that this story, if they could manage to get inside the haunted prison and find this death row cell, it could put them over the top. 
not only in terms of the show and providing compelling television, but on a deeper, more personal level. As Ghost Chasers, Cell 6 felt more and more like a rare and unique opportunity. The story ended up taking them someplace far darker than they ever imagined. Working together with reporter Marianne Simpson, I have put together a handful of interviews with people involved with the case. This is the story of the Ghost Brothers Detective Agency, their final episode, and the horror in Cell 6. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. as a prison guard at Slate County Correctional Facility for 16 years. Since the prison closed, he's taken other jobs, but his connection to Cell 6 is still strong. Cliff has appeared in several documentaries recounting his personal experiences, and he was one of the subjects interviewed by the Ghost Detective Brothers crew before the incident. I'd like to note here that when I spoke with him, he would only agree to be recorded if he got his payment up front. I get paid up front now. Ever since that, what's her name, Jenny Silver stiffed me and went missing. Probably got inside that prison, I bet. She seemed real amped up on that. But you asked me about those last kids. Came through a couple years back. Which ones? The, oh yeah, two brothers and a girl. Something happened to them? That's why you're here, right? Listen, kid, you seem nice. I'm not trying to be an asshole, but I get someone like you, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, comes through every couple of years. Everyone wants to hear about Cell 6. I always tell them the same stories. You've already heard them all. You know what no one ever asked me about? What happened to the ones who came before? All you people keep chasing the same story, and no one ever lives to tell it. Late into the second season of Ghost Brothers Detective Agency... The crew went up to Pennsylvania to start prepping an episode on Cell 6. It was to be the season finale, and a big one, not just a two-parter, maybe a three-parter, because it was just that big a story. And the closer they got to it, the bigger the story became. The prison, and even the same cell, had been home to Ira Dunwich, Barbed Wire Henry, the Skinner Sarah Whitlow, and several other notable villains, a veritable who's who of murder for half a century. The Ghost Brothers crew learned that after the prison closed in 1984, it had been purchased by the Catholic Church, 
More specifically, it had been purchased by a secretive order of the church based out of a diocese on Grand Bahama Island. This order had kept the prison sealed up and guarded ever since. At this point, the entire cast and crew of the Ghost Brothers Detective Agency was comprised of four people. You had the brothers, Teddy and Vince. You had Tannis, who, at this point, had genuinely earned her spot as the face of the show. And there was a man named Del Dugan. Del was a reality TV producer extraordinaire with a deep background that went all the way to the first season of MTV's The Real World. Together, the four of them tried to figure out the riddle of Slate County Correctional Facility. They had an idea for an episode and enough research for several episodes. They still lacked the nuts and bolts of how they were going to execute it. But I mean, seriously, how hard could it be to break into an abandoned prison, right? Del Dugan was brought in as a producer for the second season of Ghost Detective Brothers. The veteran showrunner quickly became an essential part of the show's chemistry, and by all accounts, his run on the show produced the best episodes they had ever done. Mr. Dugan served as producer, director, editor, and essentially the nervous center for the show, right up until the night in question. While the hosts attempted to breach the prison facility, he waited in the van. This gave him a unique perspective on the situation, saw all of their cameras, heard all of their mics, as well as being able to see what happened outside the prison. It is this unique point of view that makes him such a fascinating interview subject. Recently, I had a chance to speak with Mr. Dugan about the events that night and the aftermath. You mind if I smoke? This whole affair is a trigger for me, so... No, I don't mind talking about it. Honestly, I'm glad someone's finally here asking questions. So, you want to hear about how we got into the prisons. What happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. In the show prep, we did some research on Jenny Silver. You hear about her? She's a writer out of Florida, focused on weird history. Had like three different books published on the Devil's Triangle, stuff like that. It's... Anyway, you asked about how they got into the prison. Sopola brothers had certainly never been afraid to break the rules. With their no-budget start, they would routinely trespass, break and enter, and commit fraud. But only in the name of their investigations, which they considered to be righteous. The prison this turned out to be a very different situation for them. Not only was it locked up, but it was patrolled. Not only was it patrolled, but it was patrolled by armed guards. And not only was it patrolled by armed guards, but these were not your mall rent-a-cops. These were roughnecks from a shady company called Ambrose Security. Dell was shook. Tannis was shook. 
but the brothers only got more intrigued. What the hell was in that prison that required such protection? It had to be something juicy, right? So the brothers started to patrol the place by themselves over the course of a week, driving past, jogging or walking, different hats, different clothes, different vehicles, until they found a weakness. There was a shift change for the guards three times a day, when things seemed to be a little bit more disorganized. The graveyard shift change at midnight seemed to be the most disorganized of all. Once they had a plan in place for how and when they were going to get inside, they managed to get Tannis on board. Because they told her, well, we're going with or without you. But when it came to that, she realized she couldn't just sit on the sidelines. So the day came, and at midnight, there was the shift change for the graveyard crew. Del Dugan was sitting in his van, parked down the street. He had all the feeds rolling. And the three hosts made a mad dash through an adjacent empty lot to a weak spot in the back fence and threw into the prison compound. It felt really easy at first. But after a few steps into the compound, the alarm was raised. Floodlights turned on, and they could see that there were mounted cameras all over the place. But at this point, they couldn't turn back. They were too close. They could see the door they had scouted. The one door they could find that was sealed with plywood instead of chains. So they were ripping the wood off the door when the wall beside them started to chip and little pieces of brick flew off of it. And Tannis realized, holy shit, they're shooting at us. There was a guard approaching and under the floodlights, she could clearly see him aiming a silenced pistol at her. They opened the door and ran inside, slammed it behind them. They started running, expecting to be chased, only to be greatly surprised when that guard walked up to the outside of the door and leaned the plywood up against it. Other guards came, and they just held the plywood in place and nailed it right back in. No one chased them. That should have been a warning. The guards were shooting at them. Shots! Look, from the very beginning, this whole thing felt off to me. I mean, why even have guards in the first place? It's an, it's an empty prison. And once all three of them were in, that was it. I mean, not even an attempt to go in after them. So... They're inside. We're golden, right? Free reign of the prison? Right off, there's a problem. I had all the audio and video feeds, which is uh, the two hard cameras, three body cams, but they couldn't hear me. Something was going on with my mic. They were cut off in there. I could watch, but I couldn't interact. I was just there as a witness, I guess, but I, I kept recording. No matter what happened, I never stopped recording. This prison had been sitting empty for over 30 years. That it was empty and dark and damp and dank. This was all to be expected. Every tiny little noise they made rolled and echoed and broke and came back dirty. What they didn't expect was the smell and the cloying moisture. The dampness in the air was so thick 
beads of water flecked along the mildew-streaked walls. And although it's hard to describe the smell, it's best said as being a blend of rotting fruit and the wet pelt of a skinned dog. Teddy, Vince, and Tannis opened up a map of the facility and laid it out on the floor. They'd studied it extensively already, so they easily found exactly where they were and where they needed to go. All of the cameras and the mics were live. They kept their flashlights holstered for the time being and used the camera-mounted floodlights to show the way. They found their way to the nearest stairwell going down and made their way towards the basement. Much to their surprise, not only was the door open, but it had been braced open with a rock, and the words, This way, were scrawled on it. Every step they took brought them closer and closer to death row, and cell six. The whole path was laid out for them. Every door was propped open or taken off the hinges. Gates were open, stairwells were clear. There were literally no obstacles to stop them. They probably would have thought it was suspicious if they hadn't been doing the show for so long, but everything was playing out just like they always wanted it to. So instead of being scared, they got excited. I mean, it's a show, right? We've never been in any actual physical danger before. Why would this be any different? They plunged into it with that mindset. They never even knew they were in danger until it was too late. I yelled at them to turn back, but they couldn't hear me. Then there was a knock on the back of the van. Down here, the moisture was so bad, there was gray slime clinging to the cinder blocks. The deeper they went, the worse the smell got, and the heavier the air became with a cold, stagnant humidity. It smelled like sewage and rank sweat, like something down here was still alive. Are you getting this? became a mantra. All three of them were constantly saying it to one another, because around every corner was something that they needed to get a long still shot of. They found drawings down here, clustered around the open bars leading to death row. There was a pantheon of deformed, inhuman figures sketched on the walls. They saw makeshift traps set up in the corners, waiting to catch rodents in tiny cages. Up above were looped strands of string and twine that decorated the, the, the grates and air vents, snares for smaller animals and bats. And now they moved into death row itself. And they started to see the products of those snares and traps. Bones. Little, fragile, yellow animal bones. From mice and rats. From bats and birds. From squirrels and snakes. The creepy part wasn't the bones. It was the symmetry to how they were laid out in patterns and twisting lines that led down the hallway to one cell in particular, and they didn't have to look at the number to know which one it was. They followed this trail of bones, and they entered the cell. They realized that everything they'd seen up till now was just the scraps, the good parts, the skulls, 
the rib cages, the stretched skins, and the pelts, they'd all been collected here, amassed around a, a weird shape that looked like an altar against the wall. An oval had been etched into the cinder block wall. It was about the size of a, a picture window or a vanity mirror. The choicest bones and parts had all been arranged around this window. Around the outside of this oval were dozens of words and intricate primitive drawings, mostly matching those that they'd seen earlier. But inside that oval, the wall was completely clean and bare. It was like brand new cinder block, untouched. This was the cell where Ira Dunwich had written his mysterious book, this was the cell where Barbed Wire Henry had spent his final days. They spoke of it, they filmed, they performed as if the audience was already listening. But they kept focusing on that oval on the wall, on that window. And they were so focused that they didn't notice the shape creeping down the hallway towards them. He called himself Brother Rourke. He was escorted by a handful of soldiers, I guess, who wore priest collars and body armor. Full auto assault weapons with crosses etched in the gunmetal, I shit you not. No one else says a word, just Rourke, who explained to me that my phone would be ringing soon to tell me I was out of a job. Bob's your uncle. Within 30 seconds, my phone rings. It's the fucking vice president of the network. Says to me, sorry, Dell, we're pulling the plug. You need to leave, and you need to leave now. I refuse, of course. I'm not military or anything, but I haven't left a man behind yet. I tell Rourke, look, pull out my people, then we'll leave. I want to remember exactly what he said, because it was so creepy to me. He goes... I can't send anyone else in. It needs raw materials to grow. I said, I would wait until they came out. And he tells me they won't come out. And if they do, they won't be the people that you remember. Then he said he was sorry. No threats. No violence. He just pats my shoulder and offers his condolences for my loss. And they leave. I get back in the van. I turn the monitors back on. And all I could do was watch the blood flow. The shape moved silently on bare, calloused feet. It didn't disturb any of the patterns of bones. Every step was completely assured and learned in total darkness. Teddy was the first to sense something, and he turned his camera. His floodlight caught the shape in its blazing white glare, and the thing shrieked and attacked him. But it wasn't an it at all. It wasn't a monster or a mutant. It was a woman. Late middle-aged, Naked as the day she was born, except for dirt grime, and a thin sheen of that same gray slime that coated the walls, coated her body. At one time, this woman had been plump, but months of starvation and dehydration 
It made her bony and covered with flaps and folds of loose, yellow skin. She snarled. She grabbed the edge of the open door to cell six and smashed it into Teddy's camera. The camera, in turn, crunched against his face, knocking him down, and the woman immediately pounced on his chest and started smashing his head into the floor again and again, frantic like a trapped animal. She was so weak that this hellacious barrage wasn't enough to knock him out, although he was pretty badly concussed. Vince tossed his camera aside and he charged the woman. The brothers were both slightly built men, but Vince had the fire of brotherly love in his belly. He shoulder-tackled that woman to the floor, and they both rolled into the hallway. Little bones crunched under them as they wrestled. Tannis tried to help Teddy up, but he was still wobbly. The woman clawed at Vince's face with broken, torn fingernails. She went for his eyes, and although she didn't blind him, she managed to, oh God, hook one of those broken nails right under the edge of his eyelid, and she started to pull and twist, and he started to scream. Tannis picked up his camera and aimed the floodlight right into the wild woman's face. She howled and pulled away, finally tore her fingernail free from Vince's eyelid. Up close, looking at her straight on, Tannis realized she recognized this woman. It was Jenny Silver, the last woman who had chased the story of Cell 6. She must have been down there for months, God knows how many months, living on rat meat, licking the slime off the walls. I'd say she was crazy, but that comes so far short of describing it. It was madness. Actual Edgar Allan Lovecraft madness. She was like a wild animal. Ferocious. Not even a, a hint of reason. Making these guttural growling noises. Then Tana starts talking to her. You're Ginny Silver, right? My name is Tannis. I'm a big fan. We came here looking for you. It's really an ace move. Tannis was as sharp as they come. And it seems like they're talking the woman down. And then out of nowhere, the woman says, Your name is Tannis? I have a message for you. And then she screams. And, 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 and I can't describe it. I, I call it a scream, but it wasn't that. It was like she was a megaphone and something else was screaming through her. After her unholy scream, the shambling wretch that at one time had been known as tabloid journalist and occult writer Virginia Silver went back into full animalistic mode. Whatever part of her that had spoken seemed to be now gone, and she attacked. Teddy was holding on to the cell bars to keep upright. Vince was still on the floor, 
clutching at his face with blood pouring through his fingers. He wasn't paying attention, couldn't pay attention. And so Ginny went for him first. She attacked savagely, biting and clawing at his face and his hands. Teddy tried to fight her and pull her off of his brother. But he was too weak and she was too feral to be moved. He pounded uselessly on her back. Tannis used the cracked camera as a club and smashed it against the back of Jenny's head. Even that did nothing. The woman backhanded Tannis to the floor. She snapped at Teddy with her ground-down nubs of teeth, and he pulled away. And then she pulled the still-screaming Vince into cell six and yanked the door shut behind them. She straddled that poor boy on the ground, pinning his wrists to the floor with her scarred knees, used her fingers like talons to maul his face, tearing his lips away from his mouth, wetly pulling off his eyelids entirely and digging deep into his eye sockets until his screams turned into choking gurgles. And then, nothing. Tannis and Teddy watched on through the bars, through tears. Del Dugan watched on through body cams, through tears. They watched on as the savage woman took a fistful of tissue and gore from Vince's face and spread it out on the wall inside the confines of that oval, of that window. And then she went back again, back and forth, painting the wall with chunky blood. then she saw it. She fell to her knees before the altar. And Teddy saw it too. Tannis, Dell, they all saw it. That window opened. And there was something on the other side. I've been thinking about that night, that moment, ever since. After so much time, I should know what to say, right? But I don't. It was like a hole in the side of the world. We weren't looking at the other side of the wall. This was somewhere else. Somewhere. It was dark. Black water. An island. The sand had the color of powdered bone. And there were figures on the beach. They weren't people. And they were looking back at us. And then, like that, the vision was gone. The island on the Black Sea was gone. Vince's blood was gone. It was just a wall. An oval on a wall. Clean, blank, untouched cinder block. Jenny went back towards Vince. She needed more blood. She needed to see through again. It was never enough. She raved at them about using the blood to go further to see more. She didn't want a window. She wanted to open a doorway. She knew that there were others that had done it, and she wanted to be like them. She wanted to cross over and to join them. 
Teddy and Tannis managed to wrench open that rusty door. Teddy was beside himself. And the effects of the concussion combined with the grief and the rage for his brother propelled him through the doorway and onto that woman, where he smashed his knee into her back and then he ground her face against the floor and he laced his fingers through her matted, worm-infested hair and he dragged her up to her knees. She was in front of the altar, staring at that blank window in the wall, and Teddy smashed her face into it over and over and over and over again until she stopped moving. He told Tannis to turn around as he stared at the blood that was now oozing into the wall and disappearing as the window opened up again. But Tannis didn't turn away, and neither did Teddy. After that, Tannis and Teddy just walked out. No one stopped them, asked any questions, nothing. The guards just wanted them gone. I was going to wait till the next morning to tell them that we're all out of jobs. But by then, Ambrose Security had taken my truck, all of the equipment, all the footage. I assume it was them anyway. Or old brother Rourke. I don't know what happened to Teddy. He left in the middle of the night, and I never heard from him again. Never heard anything about Vince or Jenny Silver. Their bodies are probably still down there. But I do know where Tannis is. When I tracked down Tannis Cray to the care facility she had been residing in the last two years, I don't know what I was expecting. I knew going in that she had been catatonic for most of that time and experienced night terrors that led to her routinely being sedated and restrained. The night I went to see her, she was in a more lively mood, sitting in a rocking chair. At this point, she had not spoken a word in over a year. I think I'll let this audio speak for itself. to meet you. Listen, I know you don't like to talk, but I thought you might want to hear what I have to say. Your name is Marianne? Yes? I have a message for you.
Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Please send feedback for the show to a scary home companion at gmail.com. Leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, or Google. You can find me on social media, NateFlix on Twitter, and A Scary Home Companion on Facebook. Thanks this week go to guest voice performers, Mark Smoke, Evangeline Hensley, my wife, Jamie Lee Hensley, and featuring Kevin Sario, who did a bang-up job. On the ones and twos, my producer, DJ Jeffy D. This week, spun music by River of No, Simon Mathewson, Roscall, three songs by them, four songs by Dungeon, and a song by Psychic Witch, as well as opening theme, as always, provided by Chelsea Oxendine. Links to all of this great music can be found in the episode notes. And if you'd like more information on Slate County Correctional Facility, listen to the episode titled The Ghastly Ones. <laughs>